0: Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. Today we are joined by Tara McGowan-Ross and DJ Fraser for the first installment of our new book club series. We discuss After Black Lives Matter by Cedric Johnson.
1: Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Tout
0: la journée, Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Tout la journée, Bonjour, hi. Bonjour. Hi. Bonjour. Hi. la journée it goes. Bonjour. Hi. Bonjour. Hi. Bonjour. Hi. la journée So welcome back to fucking Kettle. Welcome back to fucking Canceled Welcome back. Yes. Today we are joined by our dear friends, Motor Mouth McGowan Ross. That's me. And Snack Daddy Deej. <laughs> <laughs>
2: most unnatural intro ever <laughs>
0: those are actually our legal names <laughs> people
3: just call us tara and dj
0: <laughs> so for those of you who are longtime listeners to fucking canceled you may remember these two from the earliest episodes of fucking canceled uh tara was on the literal third episode and i think dj was on like the fifth episode. i think it was five yeah and so go back into the archive and and listen to those um uh, but these are og fucking canceled supporters and also dear close personal friends fucking friendship also dj is literally my father so (laughs) i'm just saying that um biologically yeah so basically today we're doing something new we are starting a new series on the podcast called book club and so the reason that we're doing this is because we live under surveillance capitalism.
3: Dun, dun, dun.
1: <laughs> we're actually surveilling you right now. No, we're
3: yeah, not. We're not surveilling you. You're kind of
1: surveilling us, though. Yeah.
3: And so basically
0: what that means is that, you know, surveillance capitalism is that the there's a new kind of capitalism where they are selling your attention via social media and they are making social media as addictive as possible to really keep your eyes locked to the screen so that they can sell both your attention to advertisers and also your data, what you're clicking on. And so there's a really good book about this um, that's called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. I really recommend everybody check that out. It's not the book we're talking about today, but maybe one day we will. Um, and basically, he just talks about the fact that this addiction to social media that is so prevalent under um, surveillance capitalism, which is literally like intentionally designed by. Um, you know, corporations to steal and sell our attention is just eroding our capacity to pay attention to long form writing or to think deeply and at length about any kind of ideas. Mm. And so this is really affecting, you know, even people who are, you know, writers and readers and thinkers who do that in a very serious way or even do that for a living. And so we need to actually be Stealing back our attention and spending some time reading long-form writing. And so this is actually kind of hard under today's situation. And so one of the ways that we can do that is through having a book club. Because a book club means that you've made an agreement to your friends to actually read a book and to show up and talk about it. Accountability. Terrifying. Yeah,
3: it's a scary concept, <laughs> but we're taking it back. We're taking it back.
0: Yeah, and so we thought, you know, it would be a cool way both for us to like practice what we preach and actually commit to doing more reading, um, which strengthens our ideas as thinkers. Um, but also, it would help us to model this to our listeners and actually like you know show the process of having a book club. And so we are having a book club
2: you called in the experts Tara and I have been doing this in some form or another for a couple years now so yeah we have
3: another book club where we read weird Canadian books um (laughs) <laughs> that are specifically ones that are unpopular to read and apparently
2: ones that just detail the life of my father in mid-20th century Canada yeah
3: yeah it's uh it's been good it's been good it was a, a, a central pillar of my mental health for a bit where I'm like life is weird in Canada now but apparently it always has been so I <laughs> yeah. don't have to feel that bad I
0: mean like Tara and DJ are like our friends and they're very smart people but they're also like you know Professional thinkers, if I may say so myself.
3: Thank you.
2: You may. Um, Someone
0: thinks. Yeah, that. like <laughs> DJ is an art historian and Tara is a famous writer. So.
1: <laughs> I don't know why he was laughing. He's actually it's a famous writer. No, it's
3: true, it's, it's true. literally
0: true. So, uh, yeah. And so today, for the first book, we're going to be discussing "After Black Lives Matter" by Cedric Johnson. When we chose this book for the book club, we had not yet, um, like had the opportunity to interview him. That happened after we had made the decision to do this book and we got the opportunity to interview him and jumped on it. So we didn't know that we'd be interviewing him, but now we have. So that's cool. But we decided we would still follow through with the book club because this is an important book and we want to talk about it more. So, yeah. And
1: we want to talk about it with our friends. Yeah. Um, just before we jump into it, I have one quick announcement, which is that I made some snazzy new stickers mm-hmm. and you can pick them up on the fucking cancel.com, uh, site where you can link to her. There's a link to our store there. Um,
0: Yes, we got the fuckingcanceled.com domain. Um, finally, we have that now. So go to fuckingcanceled.com. There's a whole thing. Click on the shop link and then you can buy the stickers. Oh yeah,
1: Clementine's adamant that it's a shop, not a store. It is
0: a shop. and um, A store is a place. A sh- store is a place. A yeah. shop is a place. A shop... Is a, a shop is a concept. A shop <laughs> is a concept. Thank you, Tara. Oh like, my God. This is why we need Tara. This is why we need Tara. Um, and so, yeah, one of them says socialism with freaky options and includes some socialism with freaky options.
3: <laughs> I think you mentioned that it was like it's a, it's two people looking at each other in ways that are socialist and vaguely homosexual. Yes, implied homosexuality.
2: Yeah. They're
1: they're good working class lads yes. gazing into each other's eyes.
2: Yeah only. Yeah, you know yeah. That's how you build The be. new socialism Exactly Yeah that's
3: how you build Working class solidarity <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so so
0: yeah,
2: It's, it's th- through gay
3: sex yeah. We yeah. all know that yeah. At least lo- like Stolen glances yes. you know? I mean that,
0: It's freaky options <laughs> Homosexuality is not Necessary for solidarity But no, It's optional It's encouraged Yeah <laughs>
1: It does help.
2: help. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right.
1: All right. All right. So, yeah. So, today we're discussing After Black Lives Matter by Cedric G. Johnson. And um, I had a question for everybody. Uh, You know, I think it's it's funny to ask about this first because the title is the first thing you see. But um, what do you guys think about the title? So, the title is After Black Lives Matter. So, what does that say to you guys?
3: Um, I have theories about this. So, um, basically, like, uh, I also want to say it right off the bat, which is that... um, I do think it's like important to situate that, uh, like, that this book is not like a unilateral condemnation of the entire mm-hmm. project of Black Lives Matter. I actually, like, as I was reading this book, was really, really, really um, impressed by just how um, committed to charitable, charitable interpretations uh, Cedric Johnson is. I think it's like it's very really responsible and it's really cool mm-hmm. and it makes my like uh, makes my philosopher brain really happy because um, it's like uh, you know in, interpreting a concept you're engaging with charitably is like the best way to come up with a strong argument, you know, like, um, and I, like throughout the book, what I was reading was like a, um, almost like the, like this, this sense that like, because black lives matter happened, we get to, engage with it critically which means that we like and and that's so fruitful you know and isn't that isn't that wonderful um you know like which is like generally how Mm. I think about engaging with ideas in a really critical way is I'm just like I'm not doing this because I hate you I'm doing this because this is how we drive thought forward, and like, isn't it wonderful that we get to do this together? You know, like it's, it's <laughs> you, you and me versus the problem. You know, like we're on the same Ooh. side. So, like, while like after Black Lives Matter has this like this sense of like um, this isn't working, so let's move on. Um, there is also this like um, this sense that like it like of of like um, of like reverence for the idea like it, it it like it was like an undeniably historical moment um, in, uh, American, uh, like popular thought that like, uh, happened for reasons. And like, I involved a lot of actors who were, um, you know, like thinking and feeling and doing the things that they were doing for really good reasons. And, um, and like it, in order to drive thought forward, we have to engage with it critically. So let's do that. And like, and then like, you know, drive Popular thought forward.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think like an important element of the of the title too is the word after, right? Which implies that there is a future, you know? Mm-hmm. That there's, there's something that we can start to do now, you know? Um, which I think is really cool. Just kind of like propelling us into the future. I'm trying to yeah. think of what our next steps are.
2: Because the book does engage with the idea of Black Lives Matter being... Uh, a movement that actually emerges from Black Power and, and Black urban movements of the sixties and seventies. I think that it also really entrenches BLM in a, in, a, in a line of descent, right? In like a lineage of activism from which we will like continue to move forward, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the idea of after means that there is a necessary propulsion into the next wave of movement because now. This has served its purpose. And like throughout the book, Johnson does really, you know, point out like critical flaws. and we'll be discussing that, obviously. But it does it does, like Tara said, talk about like good aspects of it as well. it's it mm-hmm. is it is a charitable. A reading of it, and it's not actually a reading of it that would be lost on people either. I think that's really important Aww. to see as well. That I actually, Tara, I really wanted you to call him Cedric because you had before, and I was mm-hmm. like, you're treating him like the cool professor. Oh yeah, because <laughs> that is the mode. In which he is a you, fucking cool professor. I would yeah, probably call him Cedric. <laughs> but that, that's that's it. it, right? He's the cool professor because this book is actually written in a manner that people can understand it mm. too. It's not jargony, and mm-hmm. in that way as well, I think this is part of after Black Lives Matter. This kind of reading this sort of discussion amongst friends Mm. it's not it's not beyond the scope
0: yeah and i think one other comment on the title the after part is just that like you know black lives matter especially like in the protests of 2020 had very radical demands like abolish the police abolish prisons and it's kind of like taking collective stock of like how 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 far have we come on those demands right Mm -hmm. and how effective was what black lives matter was doing on achieving its stated demands. And Mm -hmm. I think any honest reading of the situation can clearly show that it was not successful in achieving those demands. Police have not been abolished, prisons have not been abolished, and I don't think that we've actually made much movement in that direction. And so I think that, you know, a lot of what this book is about is, okay, Instead of just making these radical demands and having protests about those radical demands, like what are some concrete material strategies that could actually, you know, have an effect um, in transforming the level of severe police violence that happens in the United States?
1: For sure. And, you know, it it discusses how and we were talking about this earlier um, before we started recording how like. Um, Black Lives Matter was effectively kind of like eaten and digested by neoliberalism and then kind of like sold back to people as this kind of subcultural kind of symbolic kind of thing that people could try on or or like wear as like a, a way to sort of like symbolize something. Um, but that means that it, it lost a lot of its ability to actually, um, drive policy forward. Right. And I think that this is something that we have to be very aware of with all of our political movements, all of our political ideas in the 21st century, the neoliberalism has become expert at, um, buying our ideas and selling them back to us as subculture. Right. Um, and yeah, so that's one of the major themes of the book and Clementine was mentioning other major themes. What are some other themes that you guys notice that stuck out to you?
3: Yeah. I want to mention this way that um what i think like mark fisher would call a capitalist realism Mm, uh, like has like which is for people who don't know um uh no problem um i'm gonna tell you and (laughs) uh, (laughs) and i'm gonna love doing it because i'm such a mansplainer but basically like the idea that mark fisher um is like Uh, suggesting in this concept called capitalist realism is that basically since the end of the Cold War with the fall of the um, the USSR and the Soviet Union is that um, basically like um, especially the American popular consciousness basically like lost this very clear counterexample to Western capitalism, Mm -hmm. um, which which provided think whatever we want about the Soviet Union, we don't have to think that like they were all a bunch of uh, cutie pies who were kissing puppies all the time. But like, um, but think whatever we want about the Soviet Union. Like, it was obviously an obvious clear example of an alternative alternative yeah way of doing economics that pr- proved that capitalism is not some natural law of the universe right. basically it is a yes. set of decisions that people make in order to do economics and economics is in fact a much broader um like discipline and a much like uh, has a like involves a lot of different potential things that you can do that aren't capitalism you know and capitalism has an origin point a historical origin point there was a time before it there could be a time after it etc 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 and what the like what has happened as a result is that people tend to in the capitalist west in general but especially in america sorry guys it's really it's not your fault it's really fucked there like uh think about the the mechanisms of capitalism as though they are these natural laws of metaphysical reality you know like
1: that could not possibly change
3: these like metaphysical laws of the universe you know and like and i see i see it happen all the time people think about just the way things are in the universe as like in the terms of capitalism, which means that when there's a obvious problem, AKA like, you know, in this case, black men are overrepresented in prisons. People are getting completely horribly effed up by the police in a really, really, really serious way. The idea that class is a major determining factor, if not the major determining factor in this situation is not even not only is that not uh, front and center in people's minds, it's actively suppressed yes. as like a as yeah. like a potential thing because um, of the like the, the the afterlives of the cold of Cold War, um, like political thought suppression basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, great job Tara. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you for bringing <laughs> that
2: I, I want to add to that is like as soon as I heard the concept of capitalist realism for like really Mark Fisher's idea, I went hmm in like the 60s there were these artists named Gerhard Richter and Sigmar Polka who were pop artists and they actually made an exhibition about capitalist realism and they kind of bring, bring that re- art history bring
3: that yeah, the art that history that is history, what bring. <laughs>
2: but like that's that's exactly what they were kind of laughing at in that initial idea around it and then it spawned this whole other you know like I don't know if Mark Fisher was interested in pop art at the time
0: I mean he is like a
2: cultural a, theorist yeah, yeah he's yeah. a cultural mm-hmm. theorist so like was. this idea Unfortunately, the late Fisher, um, but it like it does capitalize on this idea. There are cultural things that are, are figured in this book as well. And I really I really enjoyed the way Johnson kind of like peeled in and out of like almost getting to art. Almost getting to art sort of like cultural analysis and then yeah. pulling
3: back. Yeah. Well, he got, you, to, he got to because he got to hip hop at yeah, one point, yes. but then he only talked about like the lyrical content and I was just like, talk about the production, man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. And he actually he ends the book with mm. um, like with a line that is like, and when police brutality is the subject of museum exhibitions, and I was like,
0: yeah, the
2: whole the whole book, I made a large arm gesture. The whole book. <laughs> I was really, I was waiting for him to like play on the visual the visual mm. capital that has right, been right, traded. Right, right, right. even the, yeah, cover the cover of this book like it is provocative, yeah. right? Beautiful! It is yeah. beautiful and if you've seen it's- the cover then you know what I'm talking about but it's covered in protest pictures yes. basically um, there's an image of two car, or a car on fire, there's an image of police in riot gear, there's images of people with their hands up and their faces covered with Black Lives Matter signs and it is beautiful Yeah, it is the beautiful um, almost elegy to this idea of this sort of protest visuality, Aww. and I wish that he had gotten to it more. But we can definitely talk more about it throughout the book. I'm very excited, <laughs> but I think I think what Tara is getting at here is like this is this is actively the only mode in which neoliberalism wants us to think. It's like, there's no other way of existing.
3: Yeah. Such a way how could again.
2: we exist outside of capital? Right.
3: Totally. Totally. And I think that like, also like, um, he talks about how black lives matter is fundamentally and primarily a, mo- a social media movement basically. Yes. Like, you know, like it's like, it is like, or like, man, I'm, maybe that's like misrepresenting what he says, but basically it is like, it is a, um, it wouldn't exist without social media it's like yeah. a, it's like the it it exists arm in arm with social media it like it was proliferated by so, and like aesthetics are a huge yeah, part of it it started as a
1: hashtag yeah. Right? yeah yeah
3: yeah <laughs> and it's like it's and it like aesthetics and how aesthetics are proliferated and how also we like um us uh, like signal to other people the like the kind of person that we are based on like how we like the, the, you know, the kinds of things we're willing to stand for or not stand for, yeah. you know, and like the, the, the economy of that is like a big part of like how black lives matter, like was a, like digested yeah, totally. by the neoliberal politic, you know, like turning everything into a personal brand. So you have right. like
0: your BLM in your like bio on Instagram, your fucking grinder profile. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. And so this is like a way of like representing that like BLM is a part of my personal brand. And so I am a certain kind of person and there, mm-hmm. a lot of hashtag activism takes on this form and and blm also comes out of a context of hashtag activism that is bigger than that because there was other hashtag activism movements like me too for example that were happening around the same time or before it Mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. i
1: think all of this ties into another major theme in the book um Which is kind of how, like, yeah, I mean, just speaking of, like, the visual element of all of this and the personal brand and all this is that anyone can kind of produce this, like, visual content, right? Um, And use it to project a certain, like, image into the world um, while not changing anything, right? About, for example, their own personal individual actions, but also on a much broader scale, a a corporation can do this, a country can do this, right? Mm -hmm. A state government, whatever. Um, Much larger institutions than just an individual can do exactly the same thing. And something that he points out over and over again is that within the United States, there is not only like a black underclass, there's also a black middle class and a black ruling class, like sections of the black population are elements of the ruling class in the United States, Mm. especially in areas that are majority black, right? It's not surprising that in uh, majority black cities, there is a segment of that black population who rule that area, right? And they control most of the money and they control most of the political power and so on. And they tend to have... Um, the kinds of ideological positions that we would expect. From members of the ruling from class. From rich people. Yeah. 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 You know? And so they're they're perfectly happy to sort of like pay lip service to certain elements of black liberation stuff, um, especially if it's black liberation stuff that uh, yes. pays no attention whatsoever to class ever, right? Yeah. Um, while continuing to enact neoliberal policies over and over yes. again. And then he gives these case studies of primarily Baltimore and Chicago that just show how the black ruling class in those cities is just completely beholden to neoliberal capitalism because of course they are.
3: Yo, I had no idea about Baltimore.
1: Yo, it's crazy, right? Oh, Baltimore's
3: crazy.
2: That chapter was amazing and again I'm, I'm you know maybe i won't get into all of it but it, it called back to me especially the chapter about baltimore specifically mm. because there have been so many aesthetic and visual and storytelling representatives of baltimore like the wire and like mm. there are also there's another couple examples that i um i put in my notes but like like the idea of the inner Harbor specifically was captured by the wire in this sort of like disenfranchised lower middle class. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about white people and that it was like season two of the wire and it's the least liked season of the wire. And the main story is about this disenfranchised, um Longshoreman basically yeah. and like what gets into yeah yeah and it's like it's a it's I thought it was a really great season for the storytelling of it but all these ideas around Baltimore and Chicago that he raises and his really concise criticism of Obama era mm-hmm. sort of neoliberalism in the states is just I mean, it's exactly what it is. It's not like a
3: searing criticism. It's just presenting it for what it was. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, the like the thing that I I think Cedric, my my good friend Cedric, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never met him. Um, uh, does really well, which is that um this like this very gentle but very firm, like bring like, let's bring us back to reality, yes. back yeah. to reality, back yes. to real life, back to like and like let's situate this in history. Yes. Um and like uh like and he does this with um with with Overrepresentation of uh you know what like various you know population groups in prisons he does this with the the like the the history of um of like of of police he does this with the the motivations for different like for for policing in america you know and like and like he really does this really good job of very you know not he doesn't doesn't do it in a in like a in like a um poning noobs kind of way he does it in a very gentle but firm way of just basically be like here are the myth here's the mythology right and i'm just gonna mm-hmm. break it down and and like obviously racism's a real thing duh like and like also like th- like this entire so much of what we how we talk about race in america is propped up by mythology yeah mm-hmm. and that is part of the racism problem yeah like it's literally right. like that feeds into the whole thing totally so can we talk about the lumpen proletariat oh yeah love the lumpen proletariat so, <laughs> i self-identify <laughs> as lumpy proletariat yeah <laughs> I mean,
0: so yeah so in this book he talks about the lumpen proletariat he also calls it the surplus population Mm -hmm. um and I think it's a really important concept to the book and is central to understanding the way that policing works in the United States of America and many of the like violent like murders that were carried out by the police the targets of them were people who were in this underclass, mm. and so I don't think this gets talked about a lot. And like on this podcast, like Jay and I, I think we must have said it before. Like we talk about sketchy people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like sketchy, I don't know if this is like slang that everybody uses. Like if it's like,
3: I think it, it's certainly Canadian. Is it
0: Canadian? I think I'm,
3: it's. I think in, it maybe the the in like people who use sketchy Canadians are overrepresented. Maybe If like we're talking about the phrase <laughs> overrepresented, <laughs> which is my new. You know,
0: weirdly, like when I was like a street involved youth i don't know if they did this on purpose but like i used to be involved with this like street involved youth drop-in center and it was called sketch i love that (laughs) that's so good
3: very self-aware
0: so like sketchy means you know people who are street involved and like people have asked me before like what does street involved mean right Um, and street involved the reason we use the term street involved instead of just saying like homeless or the like Uh, the term unhoused, which we can get to that term (laughs) in a second, is that not all street-involved people are homeless Mm. being homeless is one way to be street involved but you can actually have a home and still be involved in criminalized economies such as sex work drug dealing and you know like other things like selling lucy cigarettes or Mm. like selling like pirated cds or some of the examples he talks about in the book um and you can also be like you can be involved in like panhandling like you can have addiction like many of the things that affect this this uh, class of people who are the lumpen proletariat, and what that means is, it's people who are actually driven out of the working class because they can't get a fucking job.
3: Yes, right. Yeah, I think that's actually so smart because I think it also plays into this. Um, this like I, I I love that this book is drawing attention to the concept of lumpen proletariat because I think it also plays into, um, my favorite uh way of problematizing how a lot of like i want to say american but i think it's just generally north american like uh class mythology um that is like like it there's a there's a particular kind of class mythology that i think is like like generally gets in the way of people thinking about class solidarity which is that that like there's that phrase of just basically being like people don't think of themselves as poor they think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires or whatever right when it's like um and it's like it's like oh yeah my windfall's coming or whatever um when it's like the lumpen proletariat is is like is like the the is comprised of the like the people who can't work yeah people who like who like can't work permanently like they're never gonna be able to work they're like they just can't people who um can't work temporarily for like, for like, you know, cause they're like injured or disabled or, or like whatever. Um, and then also like people who are between jobs for like a for some reason you know like that's also like a part you know like if you've been if you're if you're going through a long period of
2: unemployment somebody having come out of jail recently as well like that can get you in the cycle of of
3: unemployment but also like your sectors being majorly restructured and like the you know like the way that that like you have been making money your whole life is now totally changing and you don't actually know how you know like you're you're one of us, dude. Like so, yeah. you know, like
1: can, can I just can I just be a Marx nerd for one yeah, second? Yeah.
3: Come in and be a Marx nerd. <laughs> um, I also
1: so, like to add robots. So technically, the like the lumpen proletariat is kind of like a specific term that, at least the way that it was used by Marx and Engels, um, refers mostly to actually like people like professional thieves. You know, mm. less like people who are out of a job, and more people who like are sort of, like, engaged in these, what you could call, like, antisocial activities in order to survive in a professional way, you know, who like, in a long-term way. Um, however, like, I think that something interesting about the 21st century in America is that, like, there are major segments of the proletariat yes. that are sort of being, there's a constant downward pressure on them, mm-hmm. you know, and that creates this population that he's calling the surplus population. Yes. Yeah. And I think part of the surplus population no, is, pickpocket. is like classical... Yeah lumpen proletariat and then there's others who are like the just the kind of like lower segments of the proletariat in general who just live in areas where it's like fucking impossible to get a job or have like all these conditions that are making it really difficult for them to do so Yeah. Um, so yeah there's like a it's kind of like a Venn diagram yeah, I just yeah. like the lumpen proletarian legit, and legit.
0: surplus population you're saying are not exactly synonyms yeah I want to
3: try to find yeah. the part where like they talk with lumpen Yeah. Where... I do
2: also like this idea of this surplus population I remember I was listening to the episode where you interview Cedric Johnson and, I, and you ask you're like you use this term a lot surplus population I was like yes what is going on and it really does link it to that sort of economic um, language of production mm-hmm. which I found really useful because it's like well, what are they doing like what what are we gonna do with these people but the in the chapters in which he engages in case studies like Baltimore there was that there's a figure where there was a like a steelworks or something that had 30,000 employees and then 20 years later, they only needed 5,000 employees right. to have as much production as they had before because of mechanization and because of this kind of like pushing out of actual like working bodies, yeah. mm-hmm. which then contributed to a lot of other social issues, yeah. which was then not affected by all of like the gentrification and the sort of revanchism yeah. that he talks a lot about in this book.
0: Yeah. There's like, there's two things. I want to say about the the surplus population. Like one, I think is that there's, you know, my one of my areas of interest is like trauma and addiction, right? And I think that there's like an overlap. Like we're talking about poverty, we're talking about abject poverty, but part of what happens with abject poverty is trauma, right? When people are living in abject poverty for long periods of time and also generationally they become traumatized because they probably were in situations where their parents were traumatized. Their parents did not have what they needed and then they they themselves were like living with parents who were like, you know, suffering in horrible ways and so they themselves did not get the care that they needed and so then they suffer in horrible ways. Everything about
1: poverty is traumatizing. Yeah, it's awful.
0: And then addiction is a way that people deal with the pain of trauma and when people are living in so much pain, they tend to have addiction issues and so like, I think that the surplus population does tend to have an over-representation of addiction and we are you know, trained to totally not have compassion or empathy for people who are suffering in this way because we're like, well, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you know, the the attitude that people have, like, don't give homeless people money. They're just going to go use it to to get high, you know, mm-hmm. but like them getting high is actually fundamentally how they are coping with the absolute pain of both physically being like exposed to the elements yeah. um, and also being thoroughly dehumanized by everybody who walks past them. So, like, I want to bring that in because it's like when you're caught in cycles of trauma and addiction, it it really keeps you in that surplus population because how do you get ahead of it? How do you get above it? How do you get to a place where you can now even become a part of the working class when you have so much shit going on? And then secondly, I just wanted to say that like with our understanding of class, you know, for those of us who are leftists who are all about like solidarity and class consciousness, you know, we have this idea about like workers of the world, right? Workers of the world unite. Yeah. And there is a way in which even our language around that excludes the surplus population right because they aren't workers or they're working in a criminalized way um, but they're not workers in the legitimized sense you cannot unionize right. if you are a you can't withdraw
1: your labor if you're not laboring yeah
0: like if you are not laboring in a way that is considered like legitimate and i think with like the like the legalization of weed for example it's like this fucked up situation where a criminalized economy in which people were incarcerated for selling weed mm-hmm. They're still in jail, but now that segment of the economy has been like taken up in a legitimized way and people can like have a legitimate company and make a legitimate money. Um, But the people who now you, first of all, just stole all those jobs (laughs) from the surplus population. Right. And then secondly, you're not lifting like the criminalization of people who still have to deal with having a criminal record from the fact that they used to deal. So like, I'm just interested in the fact that like, you know, how can our, like, Our language around like solidarity and like organizing workers also understand this way in which people are barred from working in a a legitimized way.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. One um, is a bit of a tangent, but one thing that like struck me about the book was like he has this whole chapter right on basically like what what we could do to deal with the the quote-unquote problem of the surplus population yeah. in a way that isn't just the the american model which is their brutal repression by a militarized police state right mm-hmm. um and he, one of the options that he gives is this public works program yeah. idea right so um good. and it was interesting to me reading it because i was like we live in this um we live in this time when the refrain the constant refrain is that there's a labor shortage Right. right right. Like our politicians won't shut the fuck up about it. Yeah. and like in Canada, they're they're sort of like, what if we just like raised immigration levels to their highest ever levels, you yeah. know and see what happens because we have a, a labor shortage. And in the meantime, he's saying, well, there's this whole segment of the population right. that like, like can't fucking work, you know yeah. Um, and it, it is really interesting to think about, right? But I think that one of the things that he gets at that I really appreciated is that it doesn't like just the fact that there are jobs is not really the point. It's yeah. like, which jobs are they? Yes. How much do they pay? Yes. What do they do? And most importantly, perhaps where are they? Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. And like, it is a fact that in some like super underserved, like ghetto in some big American city, like there are not Um, good, well-paying jobs for the people who live there. Like, they they just don't exist. And the people who live there moved there because there were good, well-paying jobs, right? They moved there at the tail end of industrialization in America. They got jobs in factories. They were doing pretty well. And then the factories fucking disappeared under their asses, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they had left, like, the South, where, you know, they were living in pretty bad conditions, but a lot of them, like, owned houses and stuff that they had built. You know what I mean? And they moved to the North. They're renting in these apartments owned by white people or whatever. And then their jobs disappear. And then all of a sudden, they become this, like... The subjugated fucking uh, surplus population, and so what he's suggesting is like instead of being like learn to code, um, we, we should be like maybe like the people who live in these places should have good, well-paying union jobs um, that are producing something useful mm-hmm. for them yeah. and for their communities. You know, and like capitalism is very unlikely to provide those jobs to them just automatically. You know, right? But it it um but we can. Provide those jobs through government intervention, right? And so this is like a really interesting and important way of thinking about things. It's something. It's something that we used to do, like all the time in North America, you know. And like, there's so many examples of this. How like after World War II, we built millions of houses for like returning veterans and stuff. You know what I mean? And like, we used to have all these crown corporations. We call them crown corporations in Canada. I guess in the US, it would be like a public corporation or something. Yeah, right, right, right. They are talking about like the
2: the civilian corps and stuff like that. Yeah, uh,
1: totally. And they're like, we are going to build. Like, new bridges in every city in America or whatever, you know? Um, and it was kind of a way to just give people work, but it also had this effect of, like, building all the infrastructure that we now take for granted and seem to be incapable of building now.
3: Yeah. I know. And this is, like, this is like the thing where it's not only, like, this, like... Not only is the capitalist realism aspect of this whole problem, like, making it so that people are just, like... Like, I, the capitalist realism, I think, plays into this whole problem where it's just like, okay, well, who's going to pay for it? And, like, what is it... But how does it... iPhone, you know? How does it, like, you know... How does it, like, produce, like... <laughs> <laughs> you know but how does it produce and it's just like there's also this like kind of like almost like neoliberal like realism aspect too where it's yeah. just kind of like oh well, no one's ever done that. like literally we of all this literally just happened like you yeah. know like it happened like yeah. one second ago like if totally. you look outside of your like if you if you could look around look like drop put your phone down for like one second and look around at like how anything has ever worked for longer than like five five seconds ago but that's yeah. the like, thing there's, there's no planned,
2: planned obsolescence for reproductive labor in the home right mm-hmm. there's no way to build that into capitalism there's no way to incorporate a public works program in which people like actually walk around and do like safety checks and like I, I thought that was a really interesting aspect of his idea about public works. though too is that the first thing he suggested within that plan is to make the L uh, the elevated train in Chicago actually more safe mm. for yeah, people to be have, able like, to ride it and stuff. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 to have yeah. greeters, to have yeah. people uh, like on the platforms, like deicing things, yeah, totally, more hospitable.
1: This, the, we have a funny story about this because when we were in. London, Clementine and I, like, tried to take the, uh, the, uh, what do they call it? The underground in London. Yeah. Um, and we get to the station, and it, it was close, you know? But there was, like, a man there. And he was like, hello! And <laughs> they- <laughs> And he was like, he's like, where are you trying to go? You know? And we're like, oh, we're trying to go this place. And he's like, great. You know? And he like tells us how to get there without using the underground, you know? And he was like super duper helpful and like cheerful and whatever. It was nice. I'm sure that not everyone in London always has that experience, you know? But, but we were kind of like shocked that there was like a guy there who's going to tell us what to do. And he seemed very happy to do that, you know? And we were like, what? Like, what if we had this <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. or the guys in um, the, the guys in whose job in Germany it is to be in the bathroom cleaning the bathroom all the time so it's mm. not fucking disgusting and awful <laughs> you know yeah. and it's just like that's the job they just sit there in the bathroom and they clean it and all the time and it's sparkling and it's amazing yeah. Yeah. The, the German bathrooms are primo, amazing in contrast
0: to our experience in London like I recently was trying to go to like catch the metro at Snowden which is like for those who are not from Montreal it's like a connecting line like they're like two different lines it's a busy station mm-hmm. and it was like a busy time of day and like the train was down so like there was just tons of people like rush hour like trying to get in and there was just one man blocking the entrance and going, no, no, <laughs> like, and would not, like, let us through and would not explain anything and would not say anything. He was just like, no, no. And so, like, literally, like, huge numbers of people, hordes of people were just, like, so confused and, like, running around in circles uh-huh. and I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ and Montreal is planning to fucking slash the fucking public transit budget right, right now. To
2: prop up the police budget. Yeah, to,
0: to prop up the police budget. Right. So here we go, full circle. But uh-huh. I mean, this is
2: also something that Cedric, that Cedric, our friend Favorite my favorite professor my favorite professor Cedric he actually talks about this divide when like there's, there's an idea that private things are much nicer whereas public things are Ooh. gross and janky right? <laughs> our, our public bathrooms in Canada are gross and janky whereas a nice like uh, bathroom in a department store or something is really clean and sparkling mm-hmm. and because full of iPhones, <laughs> so full of iPhones waiting just un- to unblock box yourself and put on your social All media right. channel. And the thing about it is is that there is that real aspect where this idea of government stuff is like it's shitty. Government stuff is shitty. Government stuff is like bread lines or whatever there's this idea Mm. that anything from the government is actually fucking communist and it's really bad and this is a holdover from a lot of this sort of cold war era post new deal thinking which is like a big part of the book is that he's talking about how america was restructured after this whole idea of like the new deal offered a bailout i mean if anybody's not familiar with the new deal Mm -hmm. it happened during the depression it was part of this like larger socialist democrat or social democrat movement i shouldn't have said socialist was not socialist but that's actually part of like a lot of what i've been studying is the new deal Mm. and the works progress administration of the roosevelt era it actually put into uh, practice a huge depression relief program, which can you know, and things came out of that like the civilian corps, which Jonathan talks about in his book as well, making these big infrastructure programs. But there was such a huge backlash mm. from that aspect of social democracy that we get this hardcore entrenchment during the cold war of there cannot be social democracy yeah. because that could be socialist because it would um, it's me bullshit yeah that's like, bullshit and that's
3: like the again more of the like of the like when i when i talk about capitalist realism i talk all i like what i'm thinking about is like not even just the like um the like not even just the promotion of capitalist thinking, but the active suppression of any totally. of like of any other way of thinking about anything because like because of this like this lingering fear about like, but what if people find out that you can do anything any other way, you know? Like For those who are interested
0: in the New Deal um and and how that connects to all of this, there's a book by Touray Reid that is called Toward Freedom. Um, and we interviewed Ture in an earlier episode and we talked about the book. So you can go back and listen to that episode. But like what he talks about in that book is that today, you know, we think of basically things that were just new deal shit that were like, like, like you're saying, not even socialist. It was just like basic fucking like social welfare shit. Like we see that as so radical and we see that it is like painted as like so radical and so socialist. And it's actually like not that long ago. In the United States, it and, was and Canada. It, was, it wasn't even a hundred years it ago. It was not considered radical, and it was actually just basic, you mm-hmm. know. And now it's like we're like, oh my god, socialism—that's terrifying, and that's not even socialism. Like that's not even socialism.
1: Yeah. So yeah, yeah totally. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean,
2: Americans are terrified of like public health care.
0: Yeah. Honestly, yeah, for example, and, and yeah. we're becoming terrified of it, of it here as well. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. seriously. Um, I mean, I think there there there
2: is a lot to be said just on the arts and culture side as well that there there has been a similar vein of backlash within art because during the WPA, like Roosevelt actually, you know, like they started a thing called the Federal Arts Project, and it paid artists mm. to make a bunch of art for various different kinds of projects. There were large scale murals, there was like a whole bunch of like theater projects that were bankrolled, there was dance, there was arts and culture in general, propped up by the government as a way. For society to like flourish and be successful Mm. and for people to get relief during the depression and that as well suffered hugely during the Cold War because arts funding was then absolutely entrenched with communism and Homosexuality. Ooh, don't say homosexuality. Ooh. I mean, this is it, but I think that this
3: book is really like No an,
1: socialism, no freaky options. <laughs>
3: no freaky options, zero ever. freaky options at all. Um well, yeah, and I think that um what was gonna say I forget. Never mind. I think Jay's gonna bring another question yeah yeah
1: Yeah, so I mean Cedric, our good friend Cedric, um wrote this book obviously not because he like hates black liberation or he like loves racism or <laughs> that he's just trying to in before
3: everyone accuses yeah. us of doing these things <laughs> or
1: or that he he's just like fuck these people you know so uh, one question i want to ask you guys is like what do you think his purpose was in writing this book and do you think that he might have succeeded in that or not
3: um i definitely think that uh like at least the the, the vibe that i got from at from, from it is that is that thing that I mentioned earlier, which is that like, in order to drive popular thought forward, we have to like, like uh, responsibly, you know, dare I say lovingly, critically engage with mm-hmm. uh, with ideas as they exist. And like, I, I say all the time when people get mad at me for saying things they don't like, uh, that like, o- like that like honesty for me is like, is like a mark of respect. Like that's like the thing. You know, like you, when like when you like if if I if I don't honestly engage with an idea, I'm not treating it with respect it deserves. Like that's like it's just it's just like to, to to do otherwise would be to like treat you like a little kid that can't handle the truth of what I think. You know, like I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to you. That would be that would be not treating you respectfully and like a grown up. So like um and so like I I definitely like read from this book that there's a lot of like profound like uh maybe frustration is even too strong of a word. but there's basically just like just like uh, like philosophical um concerns and like differences that uh that like that um uh that Cedric has with uh with the, the movement for for very good reason you know, reasons that he has he has lots of like you know he's he's constantly being like historical evidence. here's more evidence here's yeah. more you know very well cited book extremely extremely well cited um and uh and like and it's it's very much within the interest of furthering black liberation and furthering like like you know liberation for um for like economically oppressed peoples in mm-hmm. general you know which like who, who like obviously black people in america are you know like that's like he, like he like puts the he states it in very clear terms where he was just like like um if we're rooting the like history of racism in america in the history of like of like slavery in America like slaves were exploited as workers that's like it's it was like a it was like a horribly a horribly ex- exploitative economic system that that like did like the worst kind of worker exploitation you can imagine you right. know like um and uh that's like that you know like and like we can we can move from there into into class consciousness that's like a, that's like a very mm-hmm. easy a very easy route actually mm.
0: yeah i think that you know if we take the problems that black lives matter was claiming or attempting to address seriously and we think that it's fucking wrong and terrifying to have, you know, police like murdering people in the streets and we want to stop that from happening, then we really need to look seriously at like whether or not what Black Lives Matter was doing was actually successful in stopping those types of things from happening. And I think what this book is asking is like is Black Lives Matter doing that? Is it is it helping people um, who are being targeted by the police, who are being assaulted by the police, who are being killed by the police? Is it preventing that from happening? Is it decreasing the incarceration of these people? Is it decreasing the traumatization of these people? Is it successful in that? Mm-hmm. And or is this, you know, uh, movement actually being used to like prop up a different segment of um, the population, mm-hmm. which includes like middle class, um and like upwardly mobile black people and also not just black people but like activisty like lefty people in general who are using black lives matter as like a brand as a personal image thing putting it in their fucking bio mm-hmm. um and using it to do like art projects and to create like whatever like nonprofit stuff and like to also like Amazon like putting BLM on to protect itself from criticisms while also like firing Chris Malls, you know? Yeah yeah and so like is Black Lives Matter as a movement being used in the in the way that um, that it should be being used you know And I think that he's critiquing that and saying like it's not and we, we could be doing other things to help these people. And and it's not a mystery like what those things are. Like we can actually yeah. think seriously and carefully and clearly and transparently about what would help. And not just in the realm of the symbolic and the rhetorical, but in the realm of the material. Like what and the possible. Yeah. Like what is really <laughs> possible and what would materially help the people who are the most at risk of police violence. And like he lays out very serious, like actual, concrete possibilities for that and i think like i think this book is very successful in that and i think that it also should encourage all of us because i think in the in the age of social media activism we are fucking in the realm of the symbolic, like all the fucking time. Oh, yeah, you know, we're in the we're in the realm of the symbolic, the representational, like you know, the theatrical. Mm. And there's even a way in which protests like serve that purpose, where it's like, wow, this is like such an empowering space. But like, what is it actually doing concretely mm. for the people that we are claiming to be helping and speaking in in service of? And you know, like, are people who sell Lucy cigarettes actually helped by black lives matter you right. know right. and like what what could help them instead
1: yeah um did the book like change your opinions or perspectives on anything did, was there anything kind of like surprise you or make you think of something in a different way
3: yes in an <laughs> embarrassing way honestly tell, tell me more. <laughs> yeah well okay i've never felt more uh more like Empathetic towards cops as workers than after the oh like my God, chapter yes. about like police officers as workers as On, alienated workers too as alienated as alien like the idea like I've also never had someone explain to me so effectively the like how like the f- the functioning of capitalism also alienates the capitalist like the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. capitalist from like from himself let's say like, a, like because like in order to like, of course, you still have to, like, make the decision, you know, whatever, to, like, do the thing, to, like, do, do the capitalism or whatever. But also, like, but also, like, like, the the capitalism is a problem bigger than any individual capitalist and also, like, the process of doing so alienates the capitalist from his, from his body, from his morals, from his, like, sense, you know, like, and that's, like, a horrible process, you know, like, it's it's awful. Mm-hmm. And, like, um and that, like, that, like, that's, that's also a process of alienation that divests a person from... A relationship with their soul and like other people, and like it's it's a terrible thing and uh and that like also like um and that yeah like also the 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 police officer is an alienated worker that the police officer is an alien worker who's heavily traumatized, the police Ooh. officer is an alien worker who's heavily traumatized and operating from a place of like 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 of course they're acting crazy, they are crazy, you know like yeah. they like they are crazy like they're they're crazy traumatized crazy people, and like um, who like whose literal outlook on the whole entire world has been permanently shifted by being like, by being extremely traumatized. Yeah. Um, and like, it, it made me think about it. Cause like, cause like, obviously I have had one or two positive experiences with police officers, you know, usually when I was like victimized in some way, you know, like, and like, um, in some small way, you know, but also thinking about like thinking about, other people whose stories that I have heard who are just kind of like, I can't, I can't say that all cops are bastards because like, you know, like when like X, Y, Z, right. horrifically awful thing happened to me, like the police were who like, you know, like who like ripped me out of the wreckage and like, you know, held my hand while I was covered in blood or whatever, you know, yeah. like, and they, and like the idea that like that, that is who we have assigned to do that work so that the rest of us don't have to like go in when the mass shooting has happened and like, you know, pull people oh, out God. and like, and that like, police officers fail at those things for lots of reasons and one of them is because they're traumatized you know like and one of them is because it's a it's a like and one of them is because it's a horrible job that alienates people from from like from their capacity to do stuff properly and that like that's a th- like and i'm just kind of like i don't i don't like like you know as someone who has been body and soul fuck the police since i was like a, literally a child you yeah. know it's like i'm just kind of like oh don't make me think about <laughs> <Yeah. that." laughs> no.
0: don't make me don't Honestly, make me feel bad. <laughs> I I I'm glad you brought this up because I think that um this is one of the topics that I think listeners to our podcast have struggled with us talking about. Right. And that we have received some feedback from our fans who uh, feel upset about any sort of discussion that is not just like 100% a cab fuck the police, you right. know? And like, of course we are like, you know, of the fuck the police, like, you know, disposition on this podcast. Like we are <laughs> Duh. like, yeah. you know, yeah. we are against like, prisons and and police as they currently exist and like we are horrified by the violence that is carried out we're horrified by incarceration um but it's also like it's interesting I want to just like draw this thought out a little bit because this podcast right like we talk about cancel culture Mm -hmm. and on this podcast we talk about how you know cancel culture works by scapegoating and by feeling like by attacking an individual person we can deal with a social problem right and I'm like I am you know probably gonna piss off some listeners by saying this but I'm interested in the way that our ACAB discourse like does a similar thing Mm -hmm. by being angry at like police officers like the actual people who are police officers and being like fuck them like they do not deserve our empathy like you know instead of actually looking at the system of policing and how the system of policing obviously hurts people who are policed and who are incarcerated Duck. who are killed yeah, yeah, by yeah. police but the how it also hurts police officers mm. and like just like one sort of like parallel to this that it's making me think of is like you know i am like a vegan and an animal rights activist and like in vegan world like we are you know we strongly oppose factory farming and we want to abolish factory farming And part of the reason that we want to abolish factory farming is because it traumatizes the workers inside factory farms. And instead of being like, fuck those people, like they're carrying out something that we find to be morally reprehensible, Mm. we're actually like, you know, the fact that those people are, you know, coerced through capitalism to to do something to work and they are doing something that is fucking insanely traumatizing to them, mm-hmm. it's also hurting them and we don't want to scapegoat them. We want to abolish factory farms for the animals and also for the fucking workers. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it is an interesting angle to be like, you know, ha- can we liberate cops from policing?
2: Well, that's the thing. And that, and you know, Johnson actually discusses this specifically within the a cab discourse and if all cops are bastards then we take bastards to mean like a child produced out of you know like a marriage out of wedlock he actually says that cops are the product of an unholy union between the capitalist class and the workers they exploit
3: That's actually such a that's an insanely, insanely powerful line.
2: And then on page two hundred eighty-three of the book, he's talking about James Baldwin, who in a few essays actually was talking about police in the sixties, says in a feat that is rare in today's social media debates and cancel culture, Baldwin demands that black humanity be recognized without losing sight of the dehumanizing effects on those charged with maintaining America's. Unjust racial order by force of arms. Yeah. yeah,
3: I think that also another important point that that um, our dear friend here um, is constantly talking about, our dear friend Cedric, uh, is like is that um, one of the one of the mythologies that props up a lot of the like neoliberal, like um, you know, like entirely race based ways of thinking about what's wrong with the, with the police is this idea that. Um, the only reason why policing exists the way that it is is because only white people exclusively hate like BIPOC people, you know, like that only white people exclusively hate just just really, really, really hate and want to punish um, like brown people, like black and brown people, basically when that's not true, like the, the reason why policing exists the way that it is, is because of a, a bunch of, a bunch of factors. One of the most powerful one is responding to the actual w- desires of constituents who are like actually fed up slash afraid slash like, you know, like of various, like of like actual crimes, you know, like, and violence yeah. committed in their communities, you know? Yeah. So it's like, like. Acting like it's, like, there's, if, if there were, if, like, if everyone just, like, voted, they would not want, like, the police would just disappear or whatever, like, you know, like, like, or like, you know, like, that, like, that, like, the police presence as it exists in America right now does not actually represent actual wills of a diverse population yes. of constituents is very silly actually you yeah, know like
1: yeah i think that that whole section about policing was also really challenging for me you know as also a a, a cab by disposition type yeah. um but like it it is something that i've thought about a bunch over the past like a couple years right yeah. where um the idea of completely abolishing the police is not a popular one yeah very 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 few people would agree that that is a policy proposal that we should take seriously. Very few, you know, and that's just a fact, right? Um, and the vast majority of people, obviously including the vast majority of, say, black Americans, um, don't think that there should be no police. Like, they, they just yes. don't think that. And so if that, if you make that a primary demand of a social movement, um, you are effectively ensuring that the social movement cannot ever meet its goals because that is not a goal that's going to be met, um, and it's a goal that is extremely unpopular. However, you know, like, like he he does a really good job of pointing out that, for example, the idea that there should be well-paying jobs for people who need them in these really uh, dispossessed areas. Is an extremely popular idea yes right? and that would be a much more popular mm. idea a much better way to get people to agree with your social movement right um, and I do think that that is like a really important thing that we should be aware of when we're trying to like come up with our 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 ideas, our slogans, whatever, yeah. you know, is that like if you're just saying something that kind of like sounds edgy but is something that almost no one wants, yeah. like wh- why? Like what is yeah. the purpose of that? Yeah, Do you yeah. know? I, he and does address like,
2: people... the woke lords in this yes, book as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there is this very, um, a sort of gentle chide to those who would be involved in that kind of like performative social yes. media kind of activism in which he's like, this is actually fucking toothless and if we really want change we need to move towards actual material goals that leave this sort of hyper individual space and we've been talking about this in various ways but here we have the alienated cop right the alienated capitalist the alienated protesters like we have all of these different segments of the population which neoliberalism has so uh Just brilliantly gutted and laid out for display like there is we are all segmented within our little Mm. bits yeah yeah. and it is the absolute focus of hyper individualism and this is the way in which movements that do have political desire behind them they get stuck on concepts and they have no way to realize it i think
3: about this all the time i think about this thing where i'm kind of like i'm kind of like there are um especially when i notice truths about the world or whatever or things that I, I suspect might be true with the world and i'm like oh no that's inconvenient because like <laughs> you know because if i if i i notice that thing's true oh no if i have to start like changing my mm. conduct or my belief system in order to acknowledge that this thing is true what's going to happen is i'm going to alienate a bunch of other people who agree with me about a bunch of other stuff right and they're gonna get really mad at me and like and like having to and like that feels antisocial almost but it's like and then i and then i have to like i have to like push this really pressed really hard on the play this tape all the way to the end button by being like, being like, what is like, where is the selfish impulse here? Is it that I don't want to be in trouble? You know, is that I don't want to be like, that I don't like, cause like, like, is it like there's this like performative aspect of like, who am I performing what for, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. and like, what am I, like, what am I performing wanting to be correct about this thing for? Like, what am I, like, what am I performing? What like aspect of my politics am I performing for? And like, is it actually going to, like to drive forward the the overarching goals of what my politics actually are you know like um and am i am i sacrificing what could be actual political gains that matter to me um in order to make sure that you know everyone at the potluck likes me the maximum amount you know like um or like thinks i have all the correct views you know like uh, that might not actually be like that might in fact be the result of this like hyper atomized yeah. like politics as this performance performance spectacle on my Instagram kind of like thing
1: yeah all of this like reminds me of this kind of like stuff that we've talked about on the podcast before and stuff that the four of us have talked about about kind of like a socialist spirituality and I'm going to try to just um, put words to like a kind of like image that's coming to mind about all this you know there's like these like kind of like frothing anarchists who are like let's just like you know shoot all the cops or whatever and then there's like the frothing tankies who are like let's shoot all the cops and replace them with our cops um, <laughs> I mean and,
0: the anarchists are kind of like that too yeah it's
1: true they'll replace them with us um, and you know and then there's sort of like these you know like meditating like hippies who are like if we just like believe hard enough everything will be love um, but I'm like there's like kind of like a A dialectic, if I'm maybe so bold, there's like a middle ground, you know, that it just involves taking like a step back and then taking like 10 more steps back, you know, Mm -hmm. and looking at this from a, a, a distance and, and yeah, like really understanding that what we've managed to come up with is this, this social form that just results in this widespread and brutal alienation for fucking everyone you know and our goal if we want to reduce suffering is to help people out of it and I I like what um what was just said about uh like liberating police from policing you know Mm. and and like I might think that an individual cop is a piece of shit I might think that um policing as an institution is very like uh has a has a long history of doing very evil shit you know Mm. um and also I can recognize that like Um, similar to like a military where people are, you know, they, they're sucked into this job for various sort of like motivations, economic, social, political, whatever. Um, and then they're like formed by it, right? Like they train you, they, they fucking brainwash you. They, they, they destroy your individuality and they they traumatize you. you. They break you and turn all these 18 year olds into killing machines, you know? and and i'm like and then they go and kill people right yeah. and it's yeah. uh, and, and then they do that on, and then
2: they come back and they're like and they do it yeah. the yeah. street involved and they and do yeah. it
1: on behalf of people who don't care about them they do it on the yeah. behalf of people who are like millions of times more powerful than they will ever be you yeah. know um and everything about this like is bad and terrible and awful and something that we want to move beyond you know yeah. and i think that there are ways to do that there really are you know and i think that like we can we really have to think about reducing the circumstances that produce crime and I like that he points out that crime is a real thing yes. you know crime yeah. is and, real. and yeah. this is this is something that like um, there's been a lot of writing on yeah. uh, on on the sort of like Marxist left in the US yeah. recently yeah. where they're like the idea that crime just doesn't exist and that like the only reason police are locking people up is because they like are they hate them you know yeah. meanies is or whatever yeah, it, yeah, that they're meanies is just inaccurate and of course police like randomly pick up guys who didn't do something wrong and, and they get like railroaded through the justice system with the you know the faulty plea deals and all this kind of thing of course this happens right but also uh they're picking up people who commit real crimes that hurt real people and real people who live in these areas that are being impacted by real crimes don't like it
0: yes yes i think like one thing i want to say about this is the idea that like crime doesn't exist or like that violent crime isn't like a very serious issue is a middle-class fantasy and like people who can sit back and say that like policing is only just about racism and there isn't actual violent crime going on are people who have not lived in neighborhoods where violent crime is going on if you can have that fantasy, if you are, like, a fucking, like, university student who has never been in a in a neighborhood where, like, you you leave your house and you see, like, a fucking knife on the ground with a bunch of blood or, like, your neighbor's kid was shot to death, you know? Um, both of which happened in Regent Park, the neighborhood that I used to live in. Um Needles, It's, like, like yeah. violent crime is a real thing. And people who live in these types of neighborhoods that we're talking about in which people are living in abject poverty and are doing survival, like you know crimes and who are also traumatized and doing all this violence like they fucking know that crime is real and like I wanted to bring up in in the murder of Jordan Neely who was a man who was murdered on the New York subway line not too long ago he was like a seriously like mentally ill traumatized person who definitely fits into this surplus population you know he was black and he was murdered on the subway by like a random bystander um who you know he was acting crazy and this guy put him in a headlock and ended up killing him and in the like uh in the social media response to that like freddie debor wrote an article about this mm. basically a whole bunch of like middle class liberals were like, I would never be afraid of Jordan Neely. That would be politically incorrect of me. <laughs> I do not, like, they were like, you know, I don't mind it when people are terrifying. I don't mind it when people are absolutely terrifying in public, you know? And so Freddie DeBoer was talking about this, like, weird posturing that goes mm. on in, like, weird, like, social justice, like, liberal stuff of these middle class people who, for the most part, are not surrounded by violence all the time, but maybe they are when they go on the subway, you know? Um, because poor people ride the subway. But it's like, you know, this idea of, like, it just doesn't really bother me because I'm not racist or I'm not, like, so... But meanwhile, you know, Jordan Neely had committed extremely violent crimes. He had, like, c- committed extremely violent crimes against, like, an old lady and, like, a young child as well. And this is, like, documented, you know? Mm-hmm. So he was a dangerous guy. And it's, like, I think part of the the actual work of people who hold abolitionism as an ideal yes. is that we actually have to hold both of those things at the same time. Like, we cannot go into delusional denial... Mm-hmm. And we cannot say, like, we we have to hold both. Jordan Neely was a, a violent and dangerous guy. He was also a survivor. He was also traumatized. And he also absolutely did not deserve to die a violent death. Yeah. You know? And we need to hold all of that together and be like, the people who, you know, are doing violent crimes out of desperation, out of trauma, out of addiction, out of mental illness, those people... They did not just randomly wake up and they're just, like, bad people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, The way that they are was produced through a society that fucking traumatized them and stripped them of everything that they need. And then it has led them to be this way. So we are all collectively responsible for that. And... They are dangerous and we actually need to take that seriously. Otherwise they're just going to hurt more people. And so like, what is the answer to that? I don't agree that the answer to that is police as it currently exists. Absolutely of not. not. Yeah. No. That's just producing more trauma. People go to jail, they come out, they're more traumatized. So that's not the answer. It certainly isn't fucking, you know, strangling a guy to death on the subway. That's not the answer. But like it, We do have to take it seriously and we do have to actually do something. We can't just like, you know, live in this fantasy world of like violent crime doesn't exist and the police only exist because of racism. That is not true.
3: Can I sidebar for a second? Yeah. Um. You, you're having, do you have a response to that thing? Because before I sidebar, <laughs> Before motor mouth thing. I went to sidebar. Just motor mouth this way. Uh.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's actually really like because like the case of Jordan Neely is particularly salient in that it really does expand on this idea that there is that there is a segment of the you know what we could call a middle class population although. I wonder if middle, upper, lower class is even as relevant as it was even 10 years ago, right? Because to people like us in the very distinct millennial generation, like, you know, as Clementine is very fond of saying, like, hello, fellow kids. Like, where are we and what are we doing? And I think there's this whole funny thing that's going on where the middle class that you're talking about mm-hmm. who's like well I wouldn't be afraid of yes. uh, like, what some people who would be politically incorrect would call like raving or like yeah. extremely violent or maniacal or any of those things that are not suitable to say. These people are in the middle class which you know 30, 35 years yes. ago would have had the most distinct fear of those people. Yes. Would have had the most distinct fear of the urban population which you know is of course code for black but there there is now this kind of weird yes. polarity in what we would call middle class fantasy so when we're like reading books like after black lives matter we have to read it from a 2023 perspective yes. in which the middle class upper class lower class uh is not as it was yes. and w- within this sort of trajectory along this road where now middle class is I like to say with their like two semesters of gender studies, they're like telling people how to address trans people in the street and like getting super mad about it, Mm. whatever.
0: I think you, I'm going to let you sidebar in one second, Tara. but it's, I think you make a really important point and it's a necessary point for this conversation in this book, which is first of all, the middle class is absolutely eroding, right? And, and people are downwardly mobile, but they would like to be upwardly mobile. And in fact, like movements like black lives matter are strategically used by a downwardly mobile middle class who are trying to be upwardly mobile and these movements are converted into a type of capital like a, a, a type of signaling that you are part of the middle class and that you are it's like the fork thing it's I know which fork to use the rich people have the special forks I've said this many times on this podcast <laughs> yeah, now yeah, yeah, yeah. but rich people have special forks and knowing <laughs> which fork is which is a big part of their class culture you know and that's how they signal to other rich people that they are rich because they know which fork is which and so in a similar way Unfortunately, a you know a movement that is supposed to be um, about you know saving the lives of traumatized street-involved people has been converted into rich people forks. Yes. It's a, it's like I know that the correct political thing is to not be terrified of people who are objectively acting terrifying, and I can like signal my like middle class like politically correct vibe of like actually I'm not terrified of it because I know that that's the correct position. It's
1: really ironic because like I think part of it is trying to signal that you are. Um, you know, you're so like cool and like down that you would never be afraid of somebody like that. But it's like it's like people who actually like live like in -in street-involved ways would definitely be terrified of that guy, you know, because 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 they know because they know. Yeah, that guy will. Well, it's it's also the
3: the people who would like. uh, There's been a few times when I've like witnessed people say things like that in real life, and I'm like, I also know that you brutally canceled somebody for totally like sneezing wrong you know <laughs> like or whatever you know yes. like and i'm like what do you mean You think that everyone, like you know, like people are just being like me, like abolish prisons now, let everybody out, and I'm like, there's a bunch of rapists and murderers in there, and I'm like, I'm like, I even might agree with you, but I don't think you philosophically thought this all through yet, because I've seen the way that you treat your roommate when they don't do the dishes (laughs) fast enough, like you know, like like what are you talking about, like you know, like you like you can't keep a friend for longer than three weeks because they they might look at you the wrong way, and then you want to set them on fire or something, like I'm like you you have not thought about what it's going to be like to be living right next to a guy who's killed 47 people you just have not thought about that yeah and like um, and' those I'm like, are always
2: the people who are like kill your local race but rapist or whatever
3: yeah like, it, it doesn't make sense it, it's you know. just like and I'm like <laughs> the internal contradictions here you like you're not thinking this through and like and then I and then I point that out and then I get kicked out of the dinner party. But anyway, um, Yeah, what was your like sidebar? My sidebar well sidebar to the sidebar is that I looked up that thing where I, I clearly I got too excited about I got too excited about the concept of the lump in proletariat and obviously it makes things up. So thank you for calling me out on it earlier. Thank you for pointing out my mistake. But <laughs> population and I've been I've been embarrassed about that the entire time. I'm like, oh, no. Cedric's I'm like Cedric's not gonna love me anymore. <laughs> Sorry, Professor Cedric. Anyway, um <laughs> There's no idea who I am. From our lumpy um, proletariat, Tara. The one, one lumpy proletariat to another. But uh, anyway, so um, the sidebar to the sidebar is that I wanted to bring up that another another thing that I thought was really, really, really well um, examined in this in this, and that like that like from, if I'm understanding correctly, that was like a really beautiful like explanation of this. It feeds into the like the like um traumatized police piece um mm-hmm. is the is like a, a, a the racist police piece you know like which is the, like and and it's like uh a cedric johnson invokes baldwin to talk about it and um and like and like in a way that i think is like inks it's just, just baldwin's so good but what he does and like but like yeah and like where baldwin's talking about how like um how like in a situation where somebody it like their life sucks um and they have there's this convenient narrative about why their life sucks and whose fault it is, you know, like, um, and like their life gets increasingly crappier and crappier and crappier and crappier, and, crappier, and like, and then at one day they're just kind of like, I guess they they just like slap the narrative on it, you know, and like and like I was I thought that was such a cogent and interesting explanation for like how mm. when when people just default to these these like really 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 messed up like hyper simplistic like but very convenient narratives about why things are the way they are. I've been thinking about it a lot. Cause I've been thinking about the like this like um this like rise in um not only like extremist politics or whatever in this like historical period but also this like what i what i what i've been observing is sort of this like this like return back to like um very essentialist ideas about like gender and race that i've been like i'm like Mm -hmm. witnessing just in the popular imagination and i've been like what the heck what happened you know like why like why like all this like i'm like on Instagram and being like, what a divine feminine, what? You know, like, what are we talking about? Like, all these, like, hyper, hyper specific, like, essentialist ideas, but like, w- like, what gender is and what, like, Race is, and like how we're supposed to, in huge mm. scare quotes, relate to each other as a result of these things. And I'm like, I'm like, I thought we had really all like moved on past this, like you know, like a little while ago. But I it's guess back, here baby. it is again. Is back, baby. We're gonna have to slut walk again. But um, uh, <laughs> like I thought we just we didn't we slut walk. I'm confused. But uh, <laughs> but uh, like and like I've been thinking about like I think the like I think the Baldwin quotation. If I understood it correctly, like um, like really yeah like there's this there's this thing of just basically like the stresses stresses mount and mount and mount and then there's just a a point where it's like and like and like yeah like as a result of like how how like not just trauma but also just like just like yeah i don't know just like shit sucking like you know like works on your brain um and it that literally does change the way you look at the world when like stuff sucks enough like for long enough you start to see the world in a much more pessimistic way you know like and it's really hard to like. Like you can get out of it because it's just it's just a framing thing or whatever. But like it's but also saying it's just a framing thing is like is like not really like you need a lot of therapy and a lot of like you need to be in a totally different environment, et cetera. But like um And, like, I was, what was, like, what was, like, really shocking to me is that I've done that, you know? Like, Mm. not about, like, about, like, black people or whatever. I do it about, because I'm, I'm native. I'm First Nations. I do it about fucking white people all the time, Mm. you know? Like, and it's, like, usually, it's usually only for a second or two. It's very acceptable. But it's, and it's socially acceptable (laughs) for me to do it. It's socially acceptable (laughs) for me to do it. But I, but it's, I I do it about settlers or whatever. Mm. And, like, and it's, like, in moments of just a complete fucking frustration when I'm at the end of my goddamn rope and I'm having a really fucking frustrating time, you know? And it's, like... And I'll just be like, I'll just be like, well maybe you should all go back to Europe, you know? Like like you know, and I don't actually believe that. It's like it's actually like counter to my what like what my politics right. actually I know it's counter to everything that I actually believe about the actual world. And it's like, it's like it's it's counter to my socialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it is something that is Delicious and it's like there's something like very relieving about it that just like there's this can it's almost it's just like this bomb Like it's for for one second. I'm I was like, gonna say it sounds like a solve. <sighs> yeah, I just like there's this like huge sigh of relief of just basically being like oh, but racism makes it feel better for a second You know like and like and like just and like there it, there's this like there's a scary mirror moment of just basically being like being like I've done that thing, you know, like um and but like I don't I don't have any power. I don't have a fucking gun. So, you mm. know, I've never and I but like but like there's a reason why I never want to touch a fucking gun ever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's because it's because guns are scary and people are human, you know? Like and like and like like, you know, don't give Traumatized, crazy people. You know, I'm I'm a certified crazy person. Don't give me a gun ever. You know, like and it's like you know, like just don't just don't give it to me. And like uh like just don't. It's that this is a very sane thing that I'm but saying. I'm being I, serious. You know, like I,
0: like I hear what you're saying because it's like the idea of scapegoating is like it's a very human fucking thing. Yeah. Like yeah, and the idea of like turning you know groups of people and like relating to them in a symbolic way and like using that symbolic way to deal with your emotions. You know, like I can relate to that, for example, with my relationship to men. Right. You know, where I have had moments where I'm just like, Jesus fucking Christ, somebody please deal with the men. Yeah, and men are know? bad, turns out. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go it back and be like, As no, they're, they're not dogs. acting yeah. like they're bad. Yeah. Um, but I might have like an emotional reaction sometimes, you know, based on like, you know, the grinding reality of sexism in mm-hmm. which it feels very enticing to have that kind of a reaction. And like, I feel like, you know, people do that. People do that all the time. It happens obviously in racism. It happens in cancel culture. It happens in anything where we want to just like turn human beings into symbols and then use that for like our emotional, um, as an emotional solve. And I'm like, yeah. Combining that with people having a gun is is a terrifying combination.
3: It's a really scary thing, and it's like uh, it's like yeah, like the like it because I I know that what I'm doing is uh, I'm objectifying human beings, you know. Like, I know but it, I also and that's a scary think thing.
2: that the exhaustion is a really important point to talk about yeah, yeah, here yeah. because. Um, Cedric does uh, really touch on the fact that a lot of people who are involved in Black Lives Matter are in this cycle of like ongoing atrocity and uh-huh. facing brutal police violence, in which they're just you know they put down a sign only to pick it back up the next day, basically. Yeah. And like there is this sort of this cycle in which you know anybody who's done any direct action or protest or activism knows it just keeps on going, mm. it just keeps on going because the circle in which you're organizing is small and there's always more things happening. And I think this is like, it was really well illustrated in the book that like that's how like really simplistic thinking gets chopped up because after a while of total exhaustion, total intellectual overcapacity we cease to be able to see things beyond abolish police like yeah. we cease to be able to be to like engage mm. with ideas of well well you know honestly how are we going to interact with the surplus population of people who yes are fucking crazy and dangerous and but we don't want to admit that and we don't have the intellectual capacity to admit it and we don't have the so emotional capacity that's when yeah. we come back to it. that's when i be like ah oh, cis people you know yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, yeah, and it's not that it's not that it's like the system under which we are forced to act constantly eroding our sense of not only like safety in the world but our ability to intellectually like combat the things that are constantly trying to get us into this hyper individualized segment in Mm -hmm. which scapegoating is our easiest option.
3: and i think it's like it's why like a book that is structured the way that this book Mm. is structured is is something that makes me so happy because it keeps me really rooted i've had to constantly root and reroute myself in my socialism because socialism is exhausting too. You know, like it's exhausting to be a socialist sometimes. It's very, it's sometimes I want to just be like, just put me on a fucking yacht and hand me a like a glass of champagne and let me just like, I don't want to deal with it. Like, I'll just, I'll just like, I just want to be, I don't want to be comfortable, you know? Cause like, I just want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to struggle for stuff to be right, to be like, to be good anymore. I just want to be in a hot tub and like, buy a house and shutter all the exactly. draw all the blinds and you you ignore that possible. <laughs> except that of course I can't afford any of it you know like but like what if I you know like whatever Tara what like, start with a boat not a yacht. You See me yacht. a yacht I want a yacht I want but like, like I Like. up because technology is hard um, but, but um i like, so like, i can't afford the domain but um like but like yeah like i don't know like like we just started
1: a me to get you a yacht yeah. please
3: get me a yacht well if you we could someone could just i, I think i explained before we started recording i explained my thousand dollar phone bill that i just got um we could start with that with that and then go from there to a yacht but basically <laughs> like, basically Directly. like whatever it's just it's like sometimes all you know like i have to take breaks from going to protests because i'm just like direct action Mm -hmm. is exhausting i have to like you know like i can't serve on a board right now because i'm like i'm at capacity for that you know like and like like it's constantly striving to try to make the world a better place is also exhausting you know like like Mm -hmm. just not to make the world not like i can actually do that but like you know like personally all by myself but like to do my part to make the world a better place which is something i really do care about is an exhausting thing Mm -hmm. and like it is tempting to just be like screw it i just want to have fun and relax and, like, you know, like, and just be comfortable, you know, like, which is the promise of capitalism. Yeah. It's like, and, you know.
1: And it's the promise of BLM because you can do all of that and just put BLM in your fucking bio. Yeah, right?
3: yeah, 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 totally. Man. That the neoliberal, like, the neoliberal promise is always dangling right in front of you. I, you know? I think, you know, one of the things um, that
0: this book offers is that, you know, I think activism would be less exhausting if activists were organized around clearer goals and more realistic goals and and actually around strategy, right? And so it's like when your goal is so diffuse and when the way that you're defining your problems is so vague, and unfortunately that's kind of the situation with the neoliberal framing of anti-racism, because if the goal is, you know, Okay, we need to challenge the racism in everyone's hearts and minds, and that's that's it. It's sort of like how do you define that, and how do you how do you measure your success? How do you
3: measure your success? And And so it's like,
0: but in fact, you know, like he's laying out this public works program, and it's like, well, we can tell if we're doing that or not, and we can actually like measure whether or not that's successful. And so, you know, returning to the realm of the material and like not always being sucked into the realm of the symbolic, I think is really important, and I think that it will help us to not be so burnt out.
2: Yeah, he really addresses this in the book because when he first points out the fallacy of like the whole new Jim Crow in in uh-huh. that in that police violence is a only experienced by black people yeah. and that carceral violence is only experienced by black people or that it was set people. up
1: specifically to target yes, them exactly and them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. that's it it is a specifically black experience only well where here's the evidence where that's not actually the case and of course it affects so many people in the united states and in canada and of course so many of those people are racialized mm-hmm. right but when he sets it up and he's like well actually that's not that like it's not that that's a that's a factor in it for sure. But what he talks about is also how people distinctly ignore the gains that were made by the social democracies sure. that I came mm. before. And this is, I think, I think it's a really good uh, primer in how acting ahistorically, AKA eradicating the racism from everybody's hearts and minds. Well, that doesn't take into account that over the course of the later 20th century, a lot of that had become part of like how things were progressing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Mm -hmm. of course it didn't, it didn't, it's not complete. Like the project is amorphous and ongoing, but like there are progressive changes that have have happened.
0: Adolf Reed talks about this and we also had the pleasure of interviewing him and you know, he talks it's about so you're popular. It's well, I mean, getting to interview our heroes is definitely cool. But um, he talks about how, you know, he's heard, you know, Afro pessimist influenced scholars make the claim that like racism has been unchanging, you know, and he is a man in his 80s who grew up in the Jim Crow South in America and has now seen that things have changed, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like insulting to say that
3: it hasn't changed. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, it obviously has changed. Have you ever been to earth? Like, is this like the thing It's like, I feel like this, like this constant refrain that Cedric Johnson is making is just basically being like, like come back to reality where not only have, has progress been made like, but like also like pro- more progress is not only possible, but like, like it's to say that it's like that, like massive progress is easy is probably not like, not was is, is a silly claim to make, but like, but like, we can start anytime, you know, like yeah. it's, you know, <laughs> and like, and also like, like, and like the, the, the things that like believing that is not, is not like a silly, ridiculous. It's like, it's like his, historically yeah. relevant, like, you know, historically like propped up by all of this evidence that here it is right here, you know, like, and like, um, cause yeah, I think that like these, these like very amorphous claims and these amorphous goals. Yes like are are like the the bread and butter butter of this doomerism kind of like thing of like of basically being like we can't like if we can't measure how things are how things are changing except for like well we'll know when we are no longer disappointed by the like the this this concept of the racism that is it may or may not be in the hearts and minds of every person which he also keeps on pointing out is like not really true like if we like you know like like in a in a measurable way most people in america are progressives like you know like it's like or like like
1: far far less like overly racist than they ever were in the past yeah
3: yeah at least like like care like yeah maybe not progressive is not maybe like a totally fair way of putting it but he's like most people are committed to giving a shit about other people on some level you know like that like that like you would you could like that like most progressives or whatever could agree with in a lot of ways you know like and like um yeah anyway
1: yeah, okay, so I have one last question okay, for us. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to lead by saying that, um, okay, so, like, it's interesting to ask ourselves, like, why we, as Canadians, are even talking about Black Lives oh, Matter, yes. right? Because it is, it, it's a movement that came from another country that primarily was about an ethnic group in that country that we are not citizens of, right? Except for DJ, who is a citizen? Um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm not going to tell that story. Oh, Famous DJ is an American. Um,
1: oh. um, but is not nice uh, cancellable events but I think that's something that people sort of like downplay or like don't realize very much is that what happens in America happens to the world Ooh. because America is the cultural center of the West, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether we like that or not, it just has so much power and influence that everything that happens in America gets exported, right? Mm-hmm. Their um, biggest export is their culture. Yeah. And as Canadians, we are right next door and, and we speak the same language as them and it just like, it just drops directly into our plates, you know? Um, But yeah, all that being said, I I think it's like interesting to ask ourselves what the implications of this book are for us as Canadians, for Canadian politics. How does this affect Canada? You know, what can we, what lessons can we draw from it? And and how might this influence Canadian politics going forward? Um, Yeah. Do you guys have any thoughts about this?
0: I mean, I think that, you know, the thing that does annoy me about much of the rhetoric that comes out of black lives matter and other like neoliberal understandings of anti-racism is the absolute flattening of identity over time and space. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that it, you know, black lives matter is part of an uh, understanding of race that basically takes American understandings of race and then projects them onto the world and assumes that race is structured because race is not a real thing. It is a social construction Mm. and it is constructed differently across time and space and it is constructed differently in Canada than it is in the United States. Like obviously we're influenced by American constructions of race because they're constantly exporting everything to us, but also it is different here in Canada and race is constructed differently in Canada. So I think that like BLM just being slapped onto Canada always fell short of actually addressing the way that policing and the way that race like plays out in Canada that being said I think that this book which is actually offering something different than Black Lives Matter is actually quite relevant to Canada and I think that many of the um the things that he's suggesting for sure could apply to Canada like we were recently, um, Jay and I were recently visiting Toronto, which is where I used to live. And we were in Regent Park, which is the neighborhood that I used to live in. And like Regent Park was an extremely poor, extremely like ghettoized neighborhood that then got super gentrified. Right. And now it's like, they just put up all these fucking disgusting, ugly high rises and just like fucking like, you know, leveled the poor people housing and sent the poor people away, you know? And it's like, Maybe instead of doing that, you guys could have invested in the communities that were already living there and actually like upkeeping that fucking cause it's true, it's like those, um those like the housing that was there that they leveled was in horrible condition like it was in horrible condition but it had been built like in like i don't know like the 1950s or something as part of this time when they were like okay we're gonna invest in like all of this social housing and then they didn't take care of it for like fucking years and years and years and so it was like in shit condition and then they just leveled it and like fucking gentrified it but it's like oh what if they had had some kind of public works program like Mm -hmm. what cedric johnson is suggesting what if they had actually like invested in the existing community and provided jobs and provided like you know there was so much work that needed to be done to help that community. And that work could have like been done by people in that community, creating needed jobs. But instead, they just gentrified it. So I think like a lot of what he's suggesting could totally play out in Canada as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, for listeners outside of Canada, there's this uh, constant inferiority complex that like politicians seem to have here about you know like Big Brother U.S. Whatever. And there's this sort of idea outside of Canada that Canada is like U.S. light. Or like some kind of like slightly social socially inferior partner, which in a lot of ways is actually playing out on world politics stages all the time. But we are a distinct culture and there are ways in which people like me, I am a dual citizen, I am not American. <laughs> solely thank you um but there's a lot of different ways in which that becomes a a really huge factor in my life i often forget i have american citizenship at key moments at key moments when remembering (laughs) would be helpful but then you know what like in the end i am coming back to the cultural aspect of this because we are force-fed american culture all the time and you know this book opens and closes with George Floyd, I mean, we also they also talk about the, like, January 6th Capitol insurrection here, but around George Floyd, like, this was a major cancellation event in your life, Clementine, and, yes. like, these kinds of movements that are largely cultural, largely symbolic, largely performative, they come around with all of the social phenomena that are engaged with them as well, and I mean, I think that what we can take from the book itself is that in North American society, um, it's it's capitalism it's capital it it, it's been capitalism the whole time the capitalism was calling from inside the house capitalism all the way down and that's what it is um and i think like that's something that we can really take from it but i think we can also you know i really do want to harp on the end that it does end where like police brutality can be something that is only in museum exhibitions i think that culturally when we take up ideas like blm and it becomes part of a brand it becomes part of an art movement or whatever i've seen a bunch of art shows that are just toothlessly rehashing identitarian politics in the most boring and uh, frankly just slipshod manners like Mm. I'm tired of it I'm over it I mean at this point in my life I am the haggard transsexual (laughs) and I'm fine with that Um, (laughs) but I do think there is a real call to actual intellectual thought here in which we have to do the work of taking ourselves maybe out of out of constant protest out of constant Mm you know, infighting with everybody because, like, there's this Afro-pessimist idea that, like, everything is imbued with microaggression mm-hmm, and racism. Mm-hmm. And we really need to start thinking about the systems that govern us that aren't just necessarily to do with one segment of the population, but mm-hmm. about liberation for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, I have a I have a different interpretation of Canada's relationship with the United States, which is that we're kind of, like, like less uh, less that we have an inferiority complex and more that actually in an intentional way that plays into our international reputation and our relationship with the United States we're kind of like the different deferential like friend you know like you know like they're the they're this like bully on the playground and we're kind of they're like oh hey like you know, kind of like like you know they're they did you help bullying that other kid <laughs> <laughs> you know and then we're we, then we kind of like we're like oh excuse him you know like um oh my God. and this like has something to do with our with like how we maintain our international reputation but then also how we avoid getting um I don't know, blown up by the, I don't know. I don't know. Like like, like getting our like lives ruined by, by Americans, um, completely. And, uh, and that like, uh, that this all, it also like, it also like, like our relationship to America as such, I think also like, yeah, helps protect us as like, it, it helps, it helps us like better conceal how in a lot of ways we are also like, you know, this like, hyper-capitalist extractive settler colony you know like in like the, the all the ways that we are like are like in the way that our economy is set up like very 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 similar to america and like to america also so like um that like but like uh but yeah like i do think that we we are culturally distinct and but like also we are like very subjected to American cultural imperialism in this like in like in a, in a, in a friendly way in that like we have this like huge <laughs> un, unguarded border and we're like we're like come on up you know keep sending your television shows, um, uh, I keep on joking that like whenever I go to the states I'm like ooh like from the television, yeah. you know, like everything. The first thing I went I showed up in California. The first thing I did was I go went, went to a Trader Joe's. I was like from the podcasts here it is here it is finally um, <laughs> the promised land. But um, I'm I'm like at this point maybe because uh, otherwise I'll get too upset um trying to kind of just like go limp and relax and be like i wonder what'll happen next in the world um like i like maybe it'll be interesting (laughs) like and like um uh but like i think that the like this like after piece is important because it's like i do Mm. think that like culturally not just politically but also aesthetically etc we're in this like weird kind of state of like not only navel gazing but also like looking back like you know like and just sort of like we're we're in this this place of like reproducing things that have already happened um and, uh, and we, we don't seem to really know where to go next. And like, uh, and we, we I think we're at a, we're at an interesting juncture, um, like politically and historically, um, where it's like, it's like even saying that we're maybe in a, it, it, like whatever, there's like, there's, there's a theory that even saying that we're in late capitalism anymore is probably not even really accurate. We're in almost like a state of like weird, like techno feudalism or whatever, you know, like capitalism has gotten so, flown so off the rails, it's not even really recognizable anymore. And, I really do think we're in a really, really historically interesting moment. And then, um, and like, and it's, and, and like, like we're, we're so unrooted and unmoored from like truth too, because of just like how surveillance capitalism and tech has like affected how we think and feel about things. Mm. And, uh, I think that like a book like this, that is just kind of like, not only can we reconnect to history and the world as it is, but like that can also push us forward, Mm. um, in a way that is like, productive and like, uh, relational and like, um, and you know, practically and functionally anti-racist is, uh, is yeah, invaluable.
1: I think my Canada takeaway is just like looking at how, um, cause in Canada as well as the United States, like you have these hashtag social movements, social movements with kind of like, um, quotation marks around it that that pop up um, from time to time. Mm-hmm based around a specific, like, identity group, um, often with demands that are either so amorphous that they're meaningless or so impossible that they're meaningless, right? Um, And... uh, Or they're just very, like, um, not clearly articulated in any kind of meaningful way, you know? And I think that um, we need to recognize that there is... um, that these social movements like almost never have the kind of power and backing behind them that they need to uh to attain their goals even if their goals were clearly articulated which they are not um and they're often quite unpopular with working people like frankly you know um in the sense that like just you know black lives matter being one example most working people don't want to see a world with no police um they think it's insane and they immediately stop paying attention, and, you know, there's, like, the whole, like, land back thing, which is more Canadian, um, and that, you know, that, that's one that is, is less a question of impossible demands and more a question of, like, very uh, badly articulated demands. So mm-hmm. it, it also just sounds completely insane because it's, it is kind of like this everyone go back to Europe thing, and then, and then you know, people will be like, oh, well, that's not what it really means. And it's like, okay, but, like, it's not articulated clearly, so nobody knows what the fuck you're talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, And this is kind of like another example. And so we have that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we have this, I believe, a massive appetite for working class politics in this country that is not being met by anyone except in this bizarre way by the Conservative Party. Yeah, I know, it's so annoying. And like the leader of the Conservative Party is the only one of these fucking politicians in Canada who will like say the word working class out loud, you know? Um, and Big and, so and and we'll literally talk about working class politics, right? Yeah. Like up on stage, right? Up just up there doing it. And in the meantime, we have this um, ostensibly social democrat party, the NDP, who like won't. You yeah. Know? Oh, they and are
2: flailing.
1: They're 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 just fucking like just imploding so badly. It's crazy. And like we're at this you know moment in history where like okay, we've all decided that millennials can't have houses ever. You know. Yeah. And like we're just like there's. Uh, there's too many jobs and not enough jobs and like nobody knows and, and nobody just, like, wants <laughs> to work <laughs> yeah. you know? nobody wants the job and like you know it but costs, also unemployment
3: and, is at nothing and you know? as,
1: like, as Tara said like you know you uh, we were talking earlier before we started recording Tara's like hey, go to the grocery store get three things and they're like that'll be $75 please and yeah. we're just like okay so nobody can afford to live there's nowhere to live anyway even if we could afford to live yeah. all of our um, bills
3: are way too high <laughs> I work yeah. all day every day my phone bill is $1000 like you know like, <laughs> and it's whatever
1: so basically the point is Is that like more than at any point in the past like 50 years, like easily, there's like this massive appetite for working class politics where like even people who don't think of themselves as working class, who do think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires are like, I am too embarrassed. Yeah. I'm, too I'm too temporarily embarrassed, embarrassed. Yeah. this is like too they're, embarrassing. They're coming and for
0: healthcare now and public transit and things that exactly, Canadians, we've exactly. always compared ourselves mm. to the United States and been like, at least we have these things that like are pretty much untouchable, like healthcare we always thought was untouchable, it's yeah. not fucking untouchable. No, they're, it's crumbling. They're, they're privatizing. They're privatizing
1: it, yeah. And so I think that like my takeaway is that like... Um, as with uh, Cedric talking about public works programs and just these sort of very basic social democratic yeah. kind of things, like these are the types of things that a political party could be putting okay. forward as a clear alternative to whatever the fuck is going on right now. <laughs> that, that a lot of people, like yes. almost regardless of anything else they believe, would be like, yeah, yeah that, that sounds that good. Happen. You know, that really would help, you know? And the thing is, we know, we fucking know for a fact that all of these types of things would disproportionately help marginalized people of every stripe, right? Yeah. We know this. It's fucking obvious. It's yeah. it's like, it's built into the entire concept, you know? Yeah. Um. And so I really do think that like something that we need to be taking away from this as people on the left generally, you know, and even like liberals can, can be like fucking tuning into this, you know? Right. Like the way to get the way forward is not to have like empty hashtag activism. It is to have working class politics and and no one is doing it except the conservatives and it's fucked.
0: And like, honestly, to, to quote Chris Smalls, like it's not a right thing. It's not a left thing. It's a worker's thing. And I think that there's a way in which even people who consider themselves on the right could be convinced if what the left was offering was actually fucking appealing and would actually speak to their material needs. But currently we don't fucking speak to their
3: material needs. So they're not convinced.
1: Yeah. Totally. All right. Well, thanks for coming to book club guys.
3: That was great guys. Books are great. Yeah. It actually felt really good. It feels like stretching for your brain. Yes.
0: I I highly Mm -hmm. recommend it. I highly recommend reading. If you guys have not yet Picked up after Black Lives Matter. Um, like you might be like, okay, look, we listened to two episodes on this already. We don't need to read the book. <laughs> Trust me, you need to read the book. Oh, we it didn't is. even get into the hip hop analysis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We didn't oh get my into my I
2: didn't get to talk about race. The entire... I love how yeah. like
1: Cedric's Instagram is just him posting like hip hop clips. Yeah. It's like purely like all yeah. it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so yeah, yeah. definitely like get the book, read the book. Um, and stay tuned because we will be back with more book club in the future.
1: Yeah. And also probably, um, sometime soon we'll let you know what book we're going to do next for yeah, book club. So, you so if you want to read along, you can And yeah. then listen into our conversation with, uh, the book in your back pocket.
0: Yeah. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.